Would you like to attend a medical school where respect, kindness, and cultural humility define professionalism? Then you should look into Vermont's Larner Medical School. Learn more in our interview today with its new Associate Dean for Admissions. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 494th episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me. Are you ready to apply to your dream medical schools? Are you competitive at your target programs, whether it's UVM or other programs? Accepted's medical school admissions quiz can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accepted.com slash medquiz, complete the quiz, and you'll not only get an assessment, but tips on how to improve your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, use the calculator at accepted.com slash medquiz to obtain your free assessment. Dr. Leila Amiri, UVM Larner's new, as of June 27, 2022, Associate Dean for Admissions, comes to Larner from the University of Illinois College of Medicine, where she was Associate Dean for Admissions and Recruitment. Previously, she was Director of Admissions and Financial Aid for the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. She holds a PhD from North Central University and an MA and BS degree from the University of South Florida. Amiri is a member of the Association of American Colleges Advancing Holistic Review and Alignment Working Group national chair of the AAMC BAMD affiliate group and national chair for the committee on AAMC professional development initiative. Dr. Amiri was also a guest last year in her previous role, and it's a pleasure to have her back on Admissions Trade Talk. Dr. Amiri, welcome once again. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here again with you. I'm delighted to speak with you today. Now, can you give us an overview of UVM Larner's College of Medicine's program, focusing on its more distinctive elements? Oh, I'll be happy to. So the Larner College of Medicine is really, so we have a big history of training medical students. We're actually celebrating our bicentennial. So the wow. class we're seating for 2023 will be the 200th class that we've seated. And Ooh. so we've come a long way in terms of the educational model. I think we're most um, known for the active learning model that we have. Students are really at the center of our learning model. And it's, it's active learning, it's student-centered learning, all based on educational pedagogy and adult learning principles. Lots of community engagement with our students here and a clinical sites for us, one here in Vermont and one in Connecticut. I know you've obviously kind of led with active learning. And when I was preparing for the call, active learning is all over the UVM Larner website and YouTube channel. What does it mean in practical terms? I mean, how does it make a difference to the medical student? So really, I mean, when you look at educational philosophy and pedagogy, adult learners need to really be invested in what they're learning. Not only do they need to be invested in what they're learning, they have to find meaning and value in it, and they have to really be at the center of constructing the information. So there's very little lecturing that happens here for our students. There's time that they spend on their own before they come to class, uh, when you think of a flipped classroom model, for example. So they spend a lot of time on their own looking at basic information. And then when they join us in the classroom setting, a lot of group activity, a lot of engaging with their peers, and then really working through uh, problems. 
And it's not completely problem-based learning, but there's problem-based learning, case-based learning, team-based learning, all of these different models where students are not sitting there just as recipients of information, but really they're constructing the information with each other as they're going through the different phases of their learning. All right. So does it mean that they're getting cases that they're analyzing? All of that. So they're getting cases, they're getting problems, and they're working in teams. So when you think about the way these things look, they, they become progressively more complex and progressively more sophisticated in terms of the case that they're engaging with. So some of them, they won't even receive all of the information, for example, that they need, which is typical in a clinical setting. So they will get a a patient scenario, for example, and there'll be some gaps in that knowledge. So they'll have to identify what those gaps in the knowledge are. They'll have to figure out a way to find it. So they're really, they're, they're working through the information that they would need to have in order to, to, pro, to solve the problem that's in front of them. And that problem's typically, obviously, a, um, a clinical case that they're engaged with. Sure. Now, before we, we started our, our formal call, you and I were talking a little bit about the the beauty of Vermont and New England, but other than having beautiful fall colors and uh, snowy winters and things like that, how does Larner's location in Vermont influence the education? Is there more of a focus on rural or wilderness medicine at Larner? So yes, to both of those, we are the only medical school in the state. So we have a, a commitment and an obligation to our, to our community here in the entirety of Vermont to provide care. So so everyone in the in the state looks to us for their health care. So that's part number one. Uh, part number two is yes, there's ample opportunities for rural health, wilderness medicine, and really global health as well. Our Connecticut campus um, has a really robust global health program with opportunities for students to to visit and learn from healthcare providers in different parts of the world to help us understand how to take care of individuals uh, better. All right. Getting back to our discussion a minute ago about active learning, how yeah. does the focus on active learning influence admissions? That's a great question, and, and which is why you asked it. So, <laughs> so right now, what we, in our current admissions model, where we have an MMI interview process, for example, and so there's mm -hmm. standard MMI questions that you would see. We also have a team-based learning station where the team-based activity requires individuals that pretty much don't know each other to work together as a team over the course of 20 to 25 minutes to solve a problem that's really designed to be so hard that it's not solvable, but the, but the intent is to um, get them involved with looking for information that's not available to them for what we've provided. They have permission to, for example, go online to take advantage of other resources that they have. To, to solve this problem and to work with each other to figure out what this is. And we assess students as they're engaged with that on their curiosity and their openness to finding other sources and obviously very importantly in working with each other um, because that's what they're expecting of them when they, when they show up on first day. Also, as we're evaluating students during the screening process, you know, obviously we look at their their grades just to make sure that they can handle science and to see what their educational stamina looks like. In addition to that, we look at the breadth, depth, and scope of the types of classes that they've taken. So how curious is this individual in their educational curriculum? Is, is what they've taken the basics that you would take for a micro degree, 
or is there other interests that emerge that would suggest that they have a curiosity that goes beyond, for example, their interest in science or their interest in um, being a um, healthcare provider. So those are some of the ways that we tap into students' preparedness and readiness for active learning. Now, um, just a preview to your audience that we will be changing the secondary next year. And so there will be um, questions in there that relate to their openness and their understanding of, of active learning and how it fits with what they're interested in, um, how they're interested in learning. Is there any, like, do you like to see that people have worked in teams, whether it be in sports or the arts or wherever? We do like to see that. And I, you know, I'd like to see that every other med school where I've been, this is my fifth stop now. So right now we don't specifically have a question on that, but that is something that we look for in the application. And um, it's not something that's rated in our screening process currently, but it does come up during admissions committee discussions. Makes sense. Makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Let's turn to the UVM application. I was going to ask, what is the secondary like? But you already said you're going to change it. So I'm not sure it makes much sense to ask that. But let's let's try this question. Does UVM screen secondaries before sending them out? You know, we don't. So we we release secondaries to every student who puts us on their MCAS application. And my you know, recommendation will be take a peek at our average metrics and really decide if it seems like this is going to be a good option for you or not. So we do not screen for releasing secondaries. Just get the applications out there as quickly as possible. Perhaps this is a better question about the secondary than um, what is your secondary like? What, what do you hope to glean from the secondary, you know, especially next year uh, that you don't get from the primary? So if it's okay with you, I'll share with you what's in the secondary now, because I'm not sure I'll remove what we have. Okay. We're just going to ask you. Got so it. Right now, yeah. So right now we ask students to, um, uh, to share with us an experience that they've had uh, with someone that's different than them and to let us know what they learned from them, because our model is one of inclusivity and cultural humility. And so it's really important for us to know that um, individuals that we invite to be part of our community have had opportunities to engage with others. And the other can be any other. So it can be a person who's in a different, you know, ethnic or racial group. It could be in a person who's from a different part of the country. It could be a person who, you know, speaks a different language. So it's nothing in particular of what that is. It's just someone who is different than individuals that you generally engage with. And, and what did you learn from them? And the reflection of it is most important for us. So again, the experience itself isn't that important. And is it what has the individual taken taken away from that. And we want to know about challenges that an individual may have faced during their life and for them to share a little bit about that with us as well. And what we're hoping to understand is really, you know, reflection, resiliency, and, and how individuals learn and recover from, from obstacles that they may have dealt with. Okay, that's uh, very, very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. What is a common mistake, and I don't mean typos, <laughs> that sure. applicants make in approaching the primary and secondary applications. So both of them, sure. it can be different. It can be different mistakes depending upon the application, but what are some common mistakes that you see? So I think, I think a common mistake that I've seen over these years that I've done this kind of work is that the applicant doesn't treat the personal comments as personal comments. The personal comments become revisiting the experiences and telling us why they're a good choice 
for a person who's going to be a physician because they, you know, went to undergrad at the school and they, this is the amount of research and then they volunteered here. And so that's just a waste of 5,300 characters because it doesn't give us any additional information. We've already read that in the experiences section. And, you know, the challenge with the personal comments is that some schools don't read them and some schools read them very thoroughly. And so I think, you know, applicants need to think about the school that reads it thoroughly. If the school isn't going to look at it, that's fine. I mean, it doesn't hurt your application in any way if they ignore that. Where it hurts is if a school looks at it and they haven't, um, if they haven't done a good job there. So that's important to help schools understand something about you. Now, I know generally students feel that it's, you know, the, the why for medicine. And it could be the why for medicine. And it could be the why of why you've done all the things that you've done. So collectively, there's understandings that a person has from having volunteered and having done research and having had leadership in all of those things. So that's one. The second one is oftentimes really strong candidates get lost in the stories. So it's story after story after story of, of things that they've experienced in the clinical setting. And there's none of themselves in it. It's all about Mr. Jones and Mrs. Smith and, you know, the little girl whose, whose hand they held, which is all really sweet and, and touching. And at the end of the day, we don't know anything more about them other than these experiences that they've had. And so the personal comments is going to be, I think, really important. And that's a mistake that we that we often see is that the personal statement doesn't add anything to their application. I think in the experiences section, applicants oftentimes shortchange themselves by not telling us what they got from the experience. They'll tell us that they worked in a wet lab and they ran Western blots and they ran the yeah. HPLC. Again, it's what did you take away? And so that's, uh, so think about, you know, what you got from that experience. And then the little bits and pieces of work here and there, I think doesn't help either. Um, you know, 20 hours here, 15 hours there, 13 hours there, just to fill up the 15 boxes doesn't help the application. I think if there's an individual who's had opportunities that have been short in duration, somehow they should collect those and have a, you know, volunteering category that maybe can come up to 125 hours and it can be, you know, under my community service volunteering, I worked at these five different places and collectively this is what I took away from that because the, the little bits and pieces is not really, it's not a good look for the primary application. On secondaries, big mistake is students don't answer, applicants don't answer the question that's being asked. And generally what the secondary is asking for is reflection. So it might be different things. You know, a common one is how are you going to add to the diversity of our program or similar to the ones that we have, you know, what was the challenging experience or who are the people that you've engaged with? In the, and they'll say, you know, I engage with other students in my class that were from this country that's halfway across the globe and it was so much fun engaging with them. And that's all they put, right? It's not an issue of who did you interact with, but it's what did what was your takeaway. And so not giving the takeaway, putting cliches in there, I think hurt applications a lot more. And I, I invite students to be an applicant, applicants, I keep on calling them students, I invite applicants to be very thoughtful about the tone of their statements. I know that this is a personal statement and we're asking you to talk about yourself. And 
at the end of the day, we're looking for a service-oriented person. And so while we know you overcame obstacles and while you did your best and you became captain of the soccer team and you know you were captain of the football team and all of those things, at the end of the day, bring it back to others that you were serving and that you were in service to. So those are some of the things that I have seen over the five institutions where I've worked. It's been the same and I've been at very different types of places and those have been um, things that have, you know, ruffled some feathers on the admissions committees. That was a fantastic answer. But if I were, if I were to sum it up in one word, would it be that superficiality is a big problem? Yes, yes, thank you. Your answer was great. It was fantastic, but that was, I think, the, the, the key point that if they're not thinking deeply about their experiences and, you know, then they're, they're wasting their time to a certain extent and your time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about a student, so, you know, we often see I was caught in my dorm room, you know, underage alcohol, caught in my dorm room or had marijuana. So what did you learn from that? Right. So oftentimes it's, well, I, I wasn't the one drinking or, um, you know, or I've overcome that or, you know, students will share very traumatic things that have happened to them and they don't help us understand how they've overcome that. And so you're exactly right. It is being superficial about things. And remember, the problem is that we don't have the privilege of sitting across the table from them when we're reading the application. Right. You can't ask them a follow-up question. You can't ask the follow-up questions. And for me, we have MMIs. So even if I wanted to, I couldn't even if I invite them for interview because it's an MMI and that's not one of the stations. So you just treat that as though this is your one shot of being able to explain what's going on here. And a bunch of people who are sitting there in judgment of you are going to read this and make a decision. And it has to be as clear as it possibly can be. Right. And I think your, you know, your focus on takeaways, what did you learn? What was the outcome? What was the result is critical. And, I, and from my experience, that's one that's frequently overlooked also. So um, anyway, I thought your answer was fantastic. What is the virtual interview day like at Larner? You mentioned it's MMI, but could you go into a little bit more? Sure. So we asked students to join us around 1130 Eastern time, and we spend the first um, almost hour just giving a little bit of information about the program. So we do talk a little bit about our resources, about the active learning modules, what are some of the modalities, so what are some of the contexts of the learning that'll happen um, for them. And a little bit of, you know, just talking about the institution and our two different campuses. Then we jump into the interview. So there'll be the MMI questions and then students will come back. We'll debrief on the MMI. Then we'll go into the team-based activity. And then we have a student panel and we invite our applicants to submit their questions to us ahead of time so that our student panelists will be prepared for their questions and we take questions live as well. And then we then we wrap the day up with a little bit more information, you know, mechanics of what's your choose what's our choose your medical school deadlines and um, you know what we do with updates and, and things like that. What our process will be. So it's a it's a little bit of a longer day only because we have the over hour MMI and then the thirty minutes of the uh, of the team based activity. You mentioned updates. I'm, I, one of my questions that I prepared is how do you view letters of intent and update letters at any time during the process? or correspondence from waitlisted applicants. So I guess in this case, it would also be interviewed applicants. 
So I will give you what our historical model has been, and I will share with you what my perspective is and, and, and what the future will be. Okay. So our historical model has been to invite individuals to submit updates if they wanted to, but that was not communicated back to the admissions committee. And so I feel that if a student has an update, that we should hear it. And if they think it's important enough for it to be shared with us, particularly if they're waitlisted, and it's something that they feel is important that changes or adds to their application. So to tell me that, you know, hey, I've continued to volunteer where I was and it continues to be fun and I continue to, you know, to have a great time helping the elderly at this um, you know, um, nursing home isn't a substantive update. It's a continuation of what was happening. But if there is a new role, you know, a publication, if there's a grant, if there's new courses that an individual has taken, if there's something new that's substantially different than what we had seen, I invite our candidates and our applicants to submit it to us because this year I'll ensure that they do get back to the admissions committee and starting next year, we'll have a formal process where it can be added to their application. So it'll be available for the committee to review. Great. All right. Another question, and this is um, because there's, there's this meme out there that if you don't have an interview invitation by Thanksgiving, you're not going to get one. So when, when is the, when do you stop sending out interview invitations? So my interviews will end at the end of February, maybe first week in March, and we're about two weeks out. So I would say if you haven't heard by February, it's probably unlikely that an interview will be offered from our institution. But Thanksgiving mm -hmm. is really early. Um, and you know, the it has to be proportional to the primary and secondary application deadline. So right now, while I'm sitting on over 8,000 applications, first of all, we haven't screened them all. And so we're not going to interview until we've been until we've had an opportunity to screen a large proportion of those applications. So everyone has a fair chance of being um, seen. And we're certainly not going to close out the interview invitations before our, our primary and secondary deadlines. Okay, makes sense. How would you suggest applicants prepare for their interview? You know, because we're solely an MMI program, what I would say is there's really not much preparation that a student can do for the MMI, depending on the school. But so this is a second place where I've, where I've had MMIs as part of our interview. And really, you know, the MMI is designed to pick up on soft skills and how you are as a person. You know, how much empathy you have, what type of team player you are, do you have strong communication skills? So there's really no way to prepare for that. So it's just a matter of being being comfortable and being confident, knowing that the school would not have invited you for interview if they were not seriously considering you as a person that they really want. So I would say, you know, the fact that you're given an interview, it's not a test run. It's basically we want you. So half of this day is really designed to recruit you. I actually call our interview day recruitment day because we've done the screening. We know that we want this individual here with us. So the, the activities of the day are one meant to recruit and two just to make sure that they can engage well. So if we have a team-based activity, for example, and the person is talking over everyone, is being disrespectful to their teammates, isn't hearing what other people are doing. It really doesn't matter how fantastic the application was. We're seeing how they are in a team setting. So that would be a reason to, for example, not extend 
an acceptance to that individual because that's how they're going to be when they show up because they're on their best behavior on interview day as are we. And so, you know, if that's, if that's how they're going to be. And for the MMIs, you know, no right or wrong answers, be comfortable with your opinions, give them as they are. And I guess it's easy for me to say, because I'm not the one applying for acceptance to med school, but it's okay if who you are as a person doesn't fit well with that school, because it's too much energy to try to, you know, maintain yourself as you are as a person at a place that doesn't accept you as who you are. You know, but for schools that have one-on-one interviews that are faculty interviews that are half an hour, you do your homework. See what they have available to them. You know, if they don't have an MD and PH, don't ask about it because they don't have one. That's a red flag that you, you know, are not prepared. Have some good questions, have some real questions. And it's okay if it's on their website, you can say, on your website, I saw this. Well, just as you said to me, I saw active learnings all over your website. What does that really look like? So really be interested in, in what they have to offer and be interested in the person that's interviewing you as well. Right. Great advice. Thank you again. What's the role of the CASPER in evaluating applicants to UVM Marner? Yeah, so for us, CASPER is it's that additional value of the person. So again, we'll look at those things that are that the committee has determined are important for them to have in terms of experiences. And we want students to have a reasonable CASPER. So if you know, so minus 2.75, whatever the CASPER is measuring, they're on the wrong end of that, you know, continuum. So we're looking for for CASPER scores that would suggest that the person again is empathetic, is a good team player, has cultural humility, those types of, you know, again, soft skills that we're looking for. So it's not a make or break for the application, but it is something that we look at. If a person has, again, a really low CASPER score, um, because we've seen that, right? They come into our interview process and they don't do well on the team-based activity. And so generally we will not extend an invitation. Right. Okay. Now you mentioned that you've already gotten 8,000 applications this year and MSAR reports that in the 2020-2021 cycle, you had 8,814 applicants you, mm-hmm. and UVM interviewed 650 and matriculated 124. That's yeah. you know quite a bit of slicing as you go down those numbers. The average MCAT is 513. The average GPA is 3.8. Clearly you attract a high caliber of applicant, but you're not just looking at stats. That's been really clear from our whole interview. What makes an applicant jump off the page for you in a positive sense? And we've been discussing mistakes, but you know, like on the, on the good side, what, what makes them jump off the page? Oh yeah. So it's a, it's an individual who's just self-aware. So one is that they're, they're self-aware. So if they, again, had some hiccups along the way that they address them head on and they help us understand what happened because, you know, we're all human. So we're going to, not everyone's going to be perfect all the time, right? We may have made a few mistakes along the way too. Exactly. Just a few here or there, right? Um, so, So what I tell students is your application has to make sense. And so, you know, when I read the personal statement and you talk to me about taking care of underserved populations, because that's clearly what we do, or I'm interested in rural communities, but your urban, 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 everything that I see in your application, the application doesn't make sense to me. So personal statement needs to be supported by the experience and activities that the individual has done. And then the letters. So the letters have to be from people that know you and that know you well. One of the first changes that we had in our letters process was 
give us three academic or professional letters from people that know you. Because while you can't say how great you are and how fantastic you were and how you being in the lab changed everything, your PI certainly can. So those things all together help this person emerge that you know has a mission that's similar to the mission that we have, which is really someone who's curious, someone who's excited about learning, and someone who has humility and just wants to be part of the team. So those pieces all have to be together. And if you know your, your audience, because they have access to these tools that you're providing to them, has a good sense of what med schools want. And we're not shy about you know, asking for things that we want. And if there's something that you know that isn't there, feel comfortable enough to share it in the application. I and mean, when we ask about COVID-19, for example, I'm pretty sure every med school in the country is asking about COVID-19. You know, don't give the standard response. We've seen COVID-19 statements that have really been remarkable. Um, that have really helped us understand what the individual has has dealt with. I mean, we know that you couldn't go into the lab. We know that you couldn't, you know, volunteer. And I, we because everybody was dealing with that kind of stuff. And many of the applicants have been very very thoughtful during this process, or they've picked up a new skill or something like that. So they've talked about those things. Or perhaps um, they were proactive in responding to it. Exactly. If they could, if they yeah, could, if and they so could. we don't look for that because obviously that maybe individuals didn't have resources available to them. So that's not necessarily what we're looking for, but don't leave the COVID statement, you know, empty. Put things in there and let us know what you did. I mean, you getting a COVID pet is okay. And that's like a fun thing to know about. So to me, those are all good positive things about an application that you really help us get to know you better. All right, thank you. Now, I noticed that UVM interviewed roughly 85% of in-state applicants, but at the end of the day, the class is made up mostly of out-of-state students, probably because Vermont is a fairly small state uh, in terms of population, at least. What role does connection to Vermont play in the evaluation process? It's an important component for us, so much so that we invite our Vermont candidates all during the same days and they all go to the committee at the same time because we get less than 100 applications from our state, somewhere between 75 to 100. I mean, we're low population state, less than 700,000. And so the number of applicants that we get from Vermont um, is small. And then, you know, we, we don't yield all of them. So we interview as many as we possibly can and we make as many offers as we possibly can. And we do lose some to neighboring states or you know, for a variety of reasons to different, um, to different locations. But we do, and we do ask for ties to Vermont. That's part of the system that we have in place. So for anyone who declares Vermont residency, we actually have to send that application over to the registrar's office. They approve it or not. And um, so it's not just based on what's on the MCAS application. And admissions, we take it at face value. If a student indicates that they're a Vermont resident, we accept that. And then we ask in the secondary, if it's a yes, then the box opens up and they'll tell us what their relationship has been. And so for us, you know, even having vacationed here for at least, you know, for several months over the course of the year, is, is enough for us to understand that the individual has enough understanding of, of what life in Vermont might be, because it is very, um, it's very different than, you know, the urban communities that students might be living in. Okay, great. A totally different topic. How do you okay. view, we're going all, all different directions here. 
How do you view prerequisites taken at, at a community college? We're fine with them. I'm perfectly, okay. it's, it's, I, you know, I'm, I'm the product of a community college and the admissions committee doesn't worry at all about community college courses. These are courses that, you know, students have taken, they've done fine in them, and then they've moved on to other classes. So we, we don't, we don't even bother with it. We don't even sit there and say, okay, these courses were taken at a community college. We just want to be sure that the courses were taken. All right. Complete non-issue then. And Mm -hmm. how do you view shadowing and virtual shadowing? Yeah. So, you know, shadowing, it's interesting because we had an admissions committee meeting yesterday. And so we were talking a little bit about how shadowing, if you know, is generally a passive experience. You, know, you follow a doctor around for a little bit of time and, you know, you get what you get from the experience really based on how much the physician engages the student. So how often do they, you know, turn around and look at you and involve you in the discussion with the, with the patient? And so that's piece number one, that in of itself, it's a rather passive experience. Number two, there's a lot of privilege associated with that. And the privilege piece of it is, you know, are you at a well-resourced institution? that has a place there, that has a connection that allows you to get the shadowing experience? Are you from a family of physicians that allows you um, to have that experience? So we don't put too much emphasis on that. If a person has it, that's great, but we don't ding a candidate if they don't have shadowing experience because we know it's hard to come by. Particularly if you're at a small liberal arts college, and there isn't really much around you that you can participate in. How we differentiate that from virtual shadowing really depends on what this, uh, what's in the application. So some of those virtual shadowing experiences aren't really virtual shadowing experiences. It's a physician sitting there talking about, you know, when they got into med school 35 years ago, what it was like. And they talk a little bit about their daily experiences. If that's what you had, you know, it's not really giving you what you should have had from the from the shadowing experience. So if you participated in virtual shadowing and you got something out of it, let us know what that was. Because telemedicine is is a reality. And I think many of us, I mean, I engaged in telemedicine for my for my parents. And so, you know, we would have the discussion with the physician. And so it's a thing. And what did you learn from it? And if you had, if you happen to have in-person shadowing and not, you know, what's the difference between that? I mean, I was listening to a, a podcast one day and, you know, the physician was talking about how telemedicine she felt was a disadvantage to her because she only sees the person's face. And so she doesn't see their gait. She doesn't see how they're moving their hands, for example. So that's important to know. So what do you get from it and what do you not get from it? And what are the benefits of it? Um, so it's fine to have it as long as you help us know. So back to what you said earlier is don't be superficial about it. Be reflective. Let us know what you got. And that's that's perfectly fine. We will not take away credit from anything that you've done, unless if it's criminal, obviously, that's a whole different story. But for anything that a candidate and an applicant has done intentionally to inform themselves of something, there's credit there because you've learned from it. Let us know what you learned. Hey, great. Wonderful answer. Thank you. This is actually a listener question. I think it's a really good okay. one. So I've been using it. Um, okay. If you were a pre-med student, traditional or otherwise, planning to apply in 2023 or 2024, so that would be either next summer or the summer after, what is mm-hmm. the one thing you would be doing to prepare yourself for medical school? 
And if you want to give two or three, it's okay too. But his question was one. So, you know, I feel that higher ed has been dismissive of the trauma that our learners have faced because of the pandemic. And so there's been trauma associated with that at different levels, and, and it's going to be different for every person. And so I would say building resiliency and, and building flexibility and knowing that you have that and sharing with us that you can do that. Because we're hearing a lot from our student affairs colleagues that students are less tolerant of, of change and flexibility. And so, so that's an important thing for us to know that you've developed that you're aware of. So I think that's going to be one, one important thing. Um, and that's in, in, all, in all aspects of your life as a medical student. So it might be, you know, today you have to come in or you don't come in, computers aren't working, you know, don't panic about that, don't get agitated about those things, and being open, uh, being open to that. I think the other piece will be, you know, this, this idea of being inclusive and accepting is really important. Um, because as we continue to make medical education more accessible to different groups in our society, what does that mean like? What, what does that mean that your learning will, will look like? And so begin to develop that type of you know, learning portfolio that will allow you to take an education however it's being delivered to you. You know, the one thing that we hear from all med students is like, oh my gosh, whatever I was doing before is not working when I started med school. And so I think it will be helpful if you know how to do that and you can communicate that with us as well so that we know you have that type of perspective uh, perspective on your learning. The other stuff you'll be doing anyway, right? You'll be, you'll be volunteering and you'll be getting medical experience and you'll be doing research if that's what you're interested in. So work on your humanism and your soft skills. Those are types of things that I would encourage students to think about and, and how you can communicate that with medical schools. Great answer again. Thank you. What would you have liked me to ask you? Um, I would have liked you to ask me about our professionalism mission because we have a professionalism mission, which I haven't seen anywhere else. <laughs> Go for it. What about the professionalism mission at, at UVM? Tell yeah, us you know, sure, of course, I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> Them is this nebulous thing, right? And so yeah. for, for the people that are in the work environment, I mean, that's the one thing that a supervisor can ding a person on and he'll never know what they mean. The person is not professional. What does that mean? And when you think about, you know, the different generations that are involved in medical education, right? The people that are close to retirement, the people that are active right now, and then the young learners that are coming in, you know, different generations. And so it's, it's always difficult to describe that. And when I tell um, you know, med students is the day before orientation, you're just an accepted medical student. The day you start medical school, now you are a member of this profession and now obligated to all of the things that come with being a member of this profession, you know, ways of being, cultural norms, ways of speaking, ways of you know, conducting yourself, ways of presenting yourself. And so what are those things? And when I interviewed at UVM and I had my one-on-one -on -one with the dean, we all have a we all have a little card that describes the professionalism mission on it. And it's based on the three tenets, some of it, which I've repeated several times during our discussion today, which is respect, kindness, and cultural humility. And so those are the ways that we as members of the Lonard College of Medicine are expected to conduct ourselves. 
in all interactions with each other and anyone that we come in contact with. And I think we all know what that means. We know what it means to be treated with kindness. And so I think we know how to treat others with kindness. We know what, it like, what it's like to be treated with respect and what it means to treat others with respect and cultural humility is the acceptance of our differences. And that's how I've been received um, by everyone that I've come into contact with. And I, I think that that really sets the tone for applicants knowing what the culture is, right? Because we tell everyone, go look at the school's mission statement, you know, read the mission statement and go to the place that, you know, has a mission statement that's alignment with yours, go to the place that has a culture that is alignment with the culture you'd like to be in. And then their fair question is, well, what is that? I look at your mission statements and you're all the same. Everyone wants to do research. Everyone wants to you know, provide compassion and care and be excellent in leadership. And what does that mean? And so what that means for us is that professionalism statement. And so if we get tense, if we're unhappy, if you know, we always remind ourselves, remember, this is how I'm supposed to conduct myself. And to emphasize that, our director of our medical school learning environment, Dr. Natalie Feldman, who looks for instances where students feel that there has been mistreatment and they discuss that with her, also has created a portal for students to share accolades. And so we have under 500 medical students and she received almost 1400 of them for this past year. Wow. And it's not just a, you know, you can put, you know, name a person in there. You name a person in there and you tell them the exact situation that you were in and why it was so fantastic as far as you were concerned. And over half of those were for our faculty. And the rest of it was for residents, fellows, other UVM hospitals and other individuals that they came in contact with. So 1,400 instances, you know, an average of three per person, and not everyone submitted, obviously, of where a student had been touched by an individual in our community that exhibited, you know, respect, kindness, cultural humility. And I love that. Um, that was beautiful. And, yeah, I, I, I just, I, and I wasn't aware of it until I actually showed up. And again, in my conversation with the dean, he handed that to me, and I and I held on to that card, you know, hoping that I'd get the job. And so now it's on my name badge. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and I love talking about that. And it's like, if you don't want that, then you shouldn't be here. But I hope that you do want it because we would love to have you here and, and embrace you in that culture. I think everybody wants it. The question is whether they want to give it, um, demonstrate those values. You know, to be on the receiving end of respect, kindness, and cultural humility feels great but you also have to be on the giving end of it that's sometimes the challenge uh Mm -hmm. but it's it sounds wonderful and i'm so glad you asked me to ask that question it was a a great answer and i think it's a really distinguishing characteristic dr amiri i think we're almost out of time i want to thank you so much for joining me and sharing your expertise and your insight this has been delightful where can listeners learn more about larner college of medicine at the university of vermont Oh, um, please visit our website at med.uvm.edu. Not only can you see information about admissions, but really the medical center, the medical school, and a lot about our community engagement as well. Wonderful. Thank you again. We'll include links in the show notes at accepted.com slash 494 to UVM's website, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to you listeners. Thank you also listeners for joining me today. Quick reminder, don't miss the Med School Admissions Quiz. Find out if you're really ready to apply and competitive at your target schools. Take the quiz at accept.com slash medquiz today. 
This is Admissions Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk with you again next week.